had a dream about this place. Welcome to episode 24 of Ghost Stories for the End of the World. Hope you're good. Um, pretty soon we're going to be starting another multi-part series about a couple of different threads from the upheavals of the 1960s. Um, unlike tabloid, there isn't really going to be an overarching narrative. Rather, it's going to be a more kind of impressionistic exploration, if you will, of the the ambient paranoia of the times. Also, unlike tabloid, some of the shows will be paywalled, and this is in keeping with giving all the new subscribers some um, premium content. So if you don't want to miss out, and we're going to be talking about things like Manson, Zodiac, The Weathermen, The Panthers, MKUltra, LSD, if you don't want to miss out on that, then hit the Patreon link in the show notes and sign up over there. Also, if I get to 500 subscribers, I think that'll give me the space that I need to start work on another show, a Patreon-only history of the Sicilian Mafia, which will be released through the Ghost Stories uh, Patreon. I've said that word so much already at this point that it's lost all meaning. (laughs) Yeah, and that'll follow the Mafia from its origins in the Napoleonic era all the way up to its present position in the Italian underworld, and that'll be released in monthly installments. So that's, you know, an entirely distinct show for the price of one, which is a bargain if you ask me. So it's been really heartening actually to see people kicking in and showing support and spreading the word. So a big thanks to all of you. Right, let's crack on. Uh, Tonight's show serves as a kind of epilogue for the American tabloid series because parts of this story are entwined with the intriguing life and very strange death of someone who'd been quite close to JFK, very close in fact. And what we'll be doing is kind of trying to make sense of the ambiguous fragments of information that come our way as we go along over the next hour or so. And the the star of tonight's episode, the the protagonist, if you will, is James Jesus Angleton, who I've been wanting to talk about for quite a while now. Um, He's also known as the poet's book the ghost, the ghost in the machine. We've kind of found him lurking here and there ever since we we started this American phase of the show. And I think this is the perfect time to really go deep on the way he shaped the CIA's first two decades and the way that the CIA in turn shaped him. So let's begin.
On a cloudy, breezy day on October 12th, 1964, a Washington DC mechanic called Henry Wiggins Jr. traveled to Pennsylvania Avenue to pick up his colleague, a guy called Bill Branch. Now they'd been called out to service a Nash Rambler sedan on the north side of Canal Road. Uh, it had been reported as abandoned by a passerby. The car had been sitting there for about an hour. Across the street from them was an embankment that descended to a footpath running alongside the, the canal. The trees and shrubbery shielded much of the, the footpath and the water from the street. And as the two mechanics were about to set to work, they heard a scream coming from that direction. Wiggins later expressed regret for his initial reaction, which was to dismiss the scream as kids just screwing around. A few seconds later, they heard gunshots. And Wiggins sprinted across the street to the lust arm wall and through a wide gap in the tree line, he caught sight of a man standing over a woman who was lying sprawled on the footpath. The woman was white, the man was black. Wiggins saw the man put something in his jacket pocket and then he looked up and directly at Wiggins who ducked down behind a wall. And when Wiggins peeked out, the man was walking away. So the police arrived shortly afterwards and they confirmed the woman had died. And then they put out an APB for a black male. Uh, Wiggins, who was, he was African-American himself, he described the suspect as between 5 feet 8 and 5 feet 10, wearing a light-colored jacket and a dark hat. He said the man he'd seen standing over the body didn't look flustered or hurried. Uh, in fact, he appeared quite calm and in complete control. A little later, one of the responding cops encountered a man named Ray Crump along the canal path. Uh, he was wearing a yellow sweatshirt and jeans and he was soaking wet. Crump explained that he'd been fly fishing and he'd slipped on some rocks and tumbled into the water. The cops who gathered around suspected that Crump had been drinking. Uh, his fly was unzipped and he seemed extremely disoriented. And later, Detective Warner and Chief Detective Weber would admit that they were perhaps overly keen to pin the murder on Crump and roll up the investigation quickly because he bore very little actual physical resemblance to the description of the killer that Wiggins had given beyond being a black male. Uh, Wiggins himself was ambivalent. He thought that Crump might be the same guy, but his clothes didn't match. He was twitchy and confused and he was 50 pounds lighter and at least five inches shorter than the, the smooth operator that Wiggins had observed standing over the woman's body. The victim was identified as Mary Pinchot Mayer. Uh, she'd been shot twice with a 38 caliber gun, once in the back of the head and once in the chest. And they were both close range contact wounds and scuff marks on the ground suggested that there had been a struggle before the actual shooting. Uh, the police never found the weapon either. Forensic tests failed to establish that Raymond Crump had fired a gun that day and they couldn't find a speck of Mary's blood or DNA on his clothes or on his body. Mary Pinchot Mayer was an artist and a socialite from Georgetown. She worked mostly in abstract expressionism and she exhibited her pieces in galleries all around Washington. She moved in elite liberal circles of poets and artists and writers and all of them were connected in one way or another to the Kennedy White House, the CIA and circles within the US power elite. 
Uh, Mary herself had been close to the Kennedy family. She used to stroll arm in arm with Jackie along the same footpath where she was murdered, and she'd begun an affair with JFK early in his first term. They'd been extremely close, sending each other, you know, long romantic letters in secret, and Kennedy supposedly confided matters of national security to her and asked for her thoughts on particular issues that he was dealing with. On one occasion, so it's rumoured, um, Mary and Kennedy apparently smoked weed in the White House while Jackie was out of town. Mary had been married to a CIA agent named Cord Mayer, who helped coordinate the agency's media subversion campaign, Operation Mockingbird. After their divorce, Mary remained very friendly with people connected to Langley, and many of them attended art exhibitions and literature discussions at her house. In fact, her identity as the woman who'd been killed on the footpath wasn't released publicly for the first 24 hours. So some of the first people outside her family to find out that she was dead were agency-connected people with an interest in art who arrived at her house that evening for a poetry reading. Um, none other than James Angleton, the CIA's chief of counterintelligence, and his wife Cecily were among that small group of guests. In fact, they'd been planning to take her out to dinner after the, the gathering had dispersed. Angleton expressed his shock and sorrow at hearing the news. The police kind of continued to search the area around the canal uh, after they'd been called to the scene, and they, they looked for more evidence to implicate Crump, who was now in custody. And around 1 p.m., an unidentified male patched into the police radio frequency and directed a river patrol team to keep an eye out for a light-coloured jacket along the Georgetown Channel of the, the Potomac River. And sure enough, the team found a jacket fitting that exact description a few minutes into their search. And a day later, an army lieutenant called William Mitchell contacted the police to say that the day before the murder, he'd seen a black male matching Crump's description following a white woman along the canal path. And it was possible, Mitchell said, that this woman was Mary Pinchot Mayer. A Crump was denied a preliminary hearing, and the judge presiding over the murder trial, uh, Howard Corcoran, who was close to Lyndon Johnson and friendly with many higher-ups at the CIA, well, he preemptively banned any discussion of Mary's private life in the courtroom. So the intelligence connections, the affair with Kennedy, the possibility that she'd been privy to state secrets that might have provided a motivation to a killer, none of it was allowed to be introduced. And Crump's lawyer, the, the pioneering African-American civil rights attorney, uh, Dovey Johnson, she later described how unnerving it was to meet brick wall after brick wall when she tried to investigate who Mary Mayer actually was. It seemed, she said, that Mary only existed as a murder victim on that footpath. And what the prosecutors hadn't reckoned with, though, was just how good an attorney Johnson was. Um, she methodically dismantled the case against Crump and managed to get him acquitted. Now, it should probably be emphasized what a remarkable achievement this was, you know, given the victim was a wealthy, very well-connected white woman and the man the state was determined to prosecute was poor and black. Now, the reason I bring all this up is because of the strange role that James Angleton played in the aftermath and the way that it contains so many of the elements of his life story in micro, which we're going to be getting into a little later. Uh, one other thing too 
which I find very interesting. A couple of hours after the police had cordoned off the crime scene, Henry Wiggins returned to the spot where he'd first heard the screams and the gunshots, and he suddenly realised that the stalled-out sedan was gone. And when he chased this up at the Keybridge SO station, where the work order had originated, the manager there was baffled to discover that the trip ticket, which that contains information such as the make and model of the car and the license plate number and the owner, well, that had disappeared from his records. And Bill Branch, who was Wiggins' colleague, remember, uh, he confirmed that he hadn't serviced the vehicle either. So somehow, between the police arriving on scene and Ray Crump being arrested, the car on Canal Street and all the paperwork relating to it back at the garage had completely vanished, and nobody has ever found out what happened to them or who owned the car. Now, the murder of Mary Pinchot Mayer officially remains unsolved, and in the years since, inevitably, with something like this, numerous theories have been advanced about what was actually going on, and the debate over whether the killing was a random attack or the result of intrigue will probably never be settled. But the role of James Angleton here has always fascinated me. And in fact, it's, it's reading about the murder of Mary Pinchot Mayer many, many years ago now. Well, that's how I first became aware of who he was. And I think to understand her murder, or at least the aftermath, you need to understand James Angleton. So I think that we should take a look at who he was and how he thought, because I personally think that might help us get to grips with why the Mayer case has proven to be so vexing for researchers and historians. So it's somewhat fitting that in addition to being a frustrated poet, a functioning alcoholic, a canny political operator, and an absolutely ruthless intelligence agent, James Angleton was also a diehard conspiracy theorist. And I imagine he'd think that to do his job, you know, a penchant for conspiracism was an essential requirement, and he was probably right about that. Um, he saw threats from the Red Menace absolutely everywhere. And his mantra was that counterintelligence always begins at home. So to this end, he infiltrated officers and assets into all manner of American institutions and political movements to subvert them and turn them into channels of information and influence for the CIA. And he peddled so much rumor and disinformation that his own staff often had trouble discerning what was real from what he'd dreamed up during all-night drinking sessions. His nicknames kind of reflect the, the strange legend that developed around him over the decades. You've got the spider, the ghost, the orchid keeper. He was a huge fan of uh, gardening. And he's also said to have inspired a number of um, fictional characters from uh, Tremont Montague in the novel Harlot's Ghost to the cigarette smoking man in The X-Files. What we'll be focusing on tonight is how the forces he played with throughout his career to manipulate his enemies, you know, lies, subversion, deceit, misdirection, 
how that and his obsession and affinity for hidden meaning and secrecy eventually overwhelmed him and it sent him spiraling into a, a head maze of paranoia and delusion and it almost destroyed the CIA's internal bureaucracy in the process. And we'll also be returning to the Mary Pinchot Meyer case because his strange behavior in the aftermath of her death is also very pertinent to what we're gonna be talking about tonight. But for now, I'll give you a quick rundown of his career up to the beginning of the 1960s. So Angleton was educated at Yale and he had a lifelong affinity for modernist poetry. And he and his friend Reed Whitmore founded a literary journal called Furioso in 1939. And they published work from a wide variety of famous poets such as, you know, E.E. E. Cummings and Dr. Carlos Williams. Angleton was a student of what they called the New Criticism, which... At its most basic level, it argues that the meaning of poetry and literature comes solely from the text itself. So every word choice, um, the, the use of language, um, if it's decoded correctly, it can help the reader understand the intent and meaning of a given piece of writing. Uh, Angleton would kind of go on to adopt this method of close reading for his work as a spook in later years. But in the late 1930s, he had a vague notion of becoming some kind of writer or literary figure. Angleton befriended the poet Ezra Pound and he visited him in Italy on a break from his studies. Uh, Angleton's parents lived in Milan and his father Hugh was a very, very well-connected American expat who could call in favours everywhere from the Italian government to players in the German arms industry. And he was a Freemason, he was a member of the Knights of Malta and he was sympathetic to Ezra Pound's view that Americanism and fascism had no reason to be in conflict with one another. Uh, Pound was, by this point, he was deep into his love affair with fascism. In James Angleton, he saw a reverential student and a ready source of funds that he could use to pay off his creditors. And when Angleton asked him for a contribution to Furioso, Pound sent a very strange experimental piece in which he listed his favorite quotes about debt and currency and economics from the founding fathers. Angleton had his father send Pound money as a way to kind of keep him afloat and keep him supported while he was writing his poetry. And they corresponded by mail when Angleton returned to Yale at the outset of World War II. And while Angleton was more sympathetic to anti-Semitism and German fascism than his more progressive classmates, he did start to tire of Pound's kind of melodramatic screeds about the virtues of Nazism. Or, you know, that's at least what he told the feds when they came knocking in 1942 while they were investigating Ezra Pound's known contacts in the States. Luckily, Angleton's favorite professor at Yale, Norman Holmes Pearson, well, he'd been recruited into the OSS and posted to London. So first he used his pull to help Ezra Pound escape a treason charge. And then he recruited Angleton to serve in London as an intelligence officer with the X2 counterintelligence department. And Angleton quickly became head of the Italian desk. And by the end of the war, he was head of all X2 operations for Italy. And he was working out of the Rome office by that point. And in this capacity, 
He helped numerous fascist and Nazi officials escape prosecution for war crimes while coordinating with underworld figures and right-wing politicians to lay the groundwork for the post-war Italian state. So he helped the uh, Christian Democrat Party win the 1948 election and he offered his thoughts and input into the development of NATO's stay-behind networks. Alan Dulles saw a lot of promise in Angleton and he named him Chief of Counterintelligence in uh, 1954. Now, Angleton was adept at cementing ties with Allied intelligence services, such as the British SIS and Israel's Mossad. Uh, he especially had a lot of affection for the Mossad. And despite this, his, his baseline assumption about all intelligence work was that no matter the agency, there was a 100% certainty it had been thoroughly penetrated by enemy spooks and all operations should be run with this in mind. So driven by these concerns about security, uh, and these concerns only shaded towards, only verged on paranoia at this point. But driven by these concerns, Angleton went about planting his own agents and informers in allied intelligence services, American federal agencies, the media, the two main political parties, and basically any other US institution that he thought might be vulnerable to Soviet penetration. Uh, counterintelligence begins at home, remember. Now, Angleton wasn't exactly wrong to make this assumption either. Uh, during the war, he'd befriended a, a British intelligence agent called Kim Philby. Philby was already something of a legend in intelligence circles at that point, and he mentored Angleton in the art of espionage, of intelligence collection, and he showed him how to handle informants and sniff out moles. <laughs> uh, Angleton was part of that American tradition of spooks, you know, people like the Dulles brothers, guys who saw themselves as refined, cultured spies, diligently protecting the interests of Western civilization with quiet, steel-eyed competence. I'm not saying that's what they actually did. That's how they just saw themselves, you know. Uh, they thought they had more in common with their, their British counterparts than they did with CIA officers who were recruited from places outside the Ivy League pipeline. And Philby, certainly, he was impressed by what he called Angleton's British disposition and his excellent taste in art and literature. And the pair grew extremely close throughout the war, with Philby even dropping in on Angleton once he was reassigned to oversee X2 from the Rome station. After the war, Philby assumed command of the MI6 station in Washington, D.C. Now remember, MI6 played a major role in helping the Americans set up first the OSS and then the CIA. Philby's appointment in D.C. therefore placed him at the heart of American power, and it made him an extremely important connecting piece in the relationship between British and American intelligence. Angleton met him frequently for cocktail lunches and the two would, you know, reminisce about the war and trade spook gossip. And Philby in turn was housemates with Guy Burgess, who was another British intelligence officer who previously worked for the Home Office and the BBC. Around May of 1951, uh, Burgess returned to Britain on home leave. And while he was there, codebreakers at GCHQ and the NSA contacted SIS, the, uh, the secret intelligence service, which comprises MI5 and MI6. Well, they contacted SIS and informed them that 
at least two of their officers were likely Soviet spies. But before SIS could act, Burgess and his friend Donald McLean, who was another MI6 officer and British embassy official, that they disappeared. Khrushchev would admit five years later that both of them had been spies and they defected to the Soviet Union. Now, Philby pleaded total ignorance when questioned by his bosses and the press, and Angleton offered him moral support and fully defended him at the CIA. And although at this point nothing concrete was unearthed about Philby, he was expelled from the United States in 1951, and MI6 requested his resignation shortly after this. Now, after the heat had died down a little bit, they re-employed him, and they gave him a new cover as a journalist based in Lebanon. And it was something of an open secret that Philby was shady, but the evidence, uh, it wasn't there to definitively prove it. And I think an interesting aspect of this story of Kim Philby is the fact that he he was screaming uh, double agent, you know, basically. And yet MI6 still rehired him on the quiet. And it goes to show how at this point, these intelligence services were as much boys clubs as they were, you know, actual security forces or something like that. Um, he was in the club. Yeah, he might he might have given the odd tidbit to the Russians, but he's in the club. He tells good stories. He's really good at charades whatever. Anyway, in 1963, Philby's cover was blown for good because another MI6 agent interviewed him in Beirut and Philby confessed that he was a Soviet spy and he then defected to the USSR and eventually worked his way up the ranks of the KGB. So after all this, Angleton found himself, if only momentarily, uh, doubting his own abilities as a counterintelligence officer see, his ego and sense of self-worth didn't let him ruminate for too long about his own competence, but still, Philby had almost been a member of the family, and the entire time they'd been friends, he was a double agent. So Angleton's paranoia blossomed. How many other SIS and CIA officers were working for the other side? Uh, wasn't it odd that so many KGB informants and CIA spies in the USSR were suddenly disappearing. What if the CIA and the wider security state had been penetrated at every single level? And the case of the Cambridge Five, the KGB ring that Philby had been part of, what if that was just a smoke show to disguise this much larger infiltration network that the Soviets were running? See, Angleton was intimately familiar with the power of this kind of disinformation exercise because he had been in charge of it himself during World War II. Allied intelligence ran a string of Nazi defectors who fed fake information to their superiors in the German high command. Some of these defectors in turn defected back to the Reich and figuring out who was staying the course and who might have flipped again was an endless source of of paranoia and excitement for OSS stuff. This was where Angleton first honed his use of close reading when browsing reports from assets in the field. Uh, and he would, you know, he'd analyze every single word to look for hints that the author might be running a game on the OSS. And the CIA itself was running a false defector program at the height of the Cold War. And as we discussed a few episodes ago, it's possible that Lee Harvey Oswald may well have been one of these uh, agents. In the late 
1970s, the agency approached a spook who was nearing retirement called Cleveland Cram, and they asked him to undertake an especially delicate assignment. They wanted him to create a history of the CIA's counterintelligence team from the time that James Angleton became chief in 1954 up to the fallout from the church committee in 1975. Uh, these were the famous hearings where some of the abuses of the US national security state were investigated. And they looked into a range of programs like Operation MKUltra and Mockingbird, as well as the CIA's use of warrantless surveillance and the FBI's COINTEL Pro program. Cram set to work writing his history with the aim of deducing the exact nature of the madness that gripped Angleton after Philby's defection at the outset of the 1960s. And Cram looked into it all in greater depth than we can really manage in the time that we have here. He eventually took nearly six years to finish his investigation, and the final manuscript ran to 12 volumes of about 400 pages apiece. And whatever he uncovered was so damaging that the CIA has classified most of it top secret ever since. But Cram became so intrigued by Angleton's 20-year reign as counterintelligence chief that he continued researching and documenting this period throughout the 80s and 90s. Cram was especially vexed by a complex story that began in 1961 when the KGB's Finland station chief, a major called Anatoly Golitsyn defected to the US. Angleton personally debriefed him and was convinced the defection was legitimate. Uh, some of the information that the KGB chief had to share pertained to Philby and the Cambridge Five. Uh, Golitsyn was an adept intelligence agent who knew exactly what to give key figures in the CIA and the SIS to establish his credibility, which mostly amounted to first uh, figuring out and then confirming the Americans and Brits' own conspiracy theories in these long elliptical interview sessions. It kind of strikes me um, as cold reading, the kind of thing that a psychic would do, you know, where they rely on the person whose fortune they're telling to give them the information. <laughs> uh, and then they they kind of parrot it back to them, but in a way that makes the, the recipient feel like their mind is actually being read or their future is actually being foretold. So yeah, Golitsyn uh, reassured MI6 that they were correct to suspect that Harold Wilson, the, the labor leader, was a KGB mole. And he added that the KGB had in fact killed Wilson's predecessor, uh, Hugh Gateskell, to ensure they'd have an ally in the British Parliament. Um, accurately judging Angleton's own outlook on Soviet espionage, Golitsyn told him that everything the Soviets had done since the mid-1950s was part of an elaborate, carefully crafted deception operation designed to conceal their true motivations. And Golitsyn said that the Sino-Soviet split, for example, had been staged to convince the West that the communist world was weaker and more divided than it actually was, and that any other KGB defectors who reached out to Western intelligence after 1961 could be safely disregarded as insincere. And when a KGB officer called Yuri Noshenko started selling information to the CIA to pay off his gambling debts in 1962, Angleton reached out to Golitsyn for his read on Noshenko. Golitsyn told him 
that Nashenko was a false defector and that he'd been sent to spy on the CIA and also provide cover for a network of KGB moles who were placed at the highest levels of the US national security state. And this seems to have been the real pivot point for Angleton. And after Noshenko moved to the States, Angleton had his protection revoked and locked him up at a CIA black site in Maryland. And for the next four years, above the protests of other CIA staff, Angleton kept Noshenko imprisoned under incredibly harsh conditions. He was fed only one meal a day. He was occasionally subjected to interrogation sessions where he was dosed with LSD, deprived of food and sleep, and held in solitary confinement. And these techniques are not too dissimilar to what would become the um, enhanced interrogation program during the war on terror. Throughout the 1960s, Angleton devoted his department's resources to investigating what came to be known as the monster plot. And he created a top secret team within the agency that was accountable only to him that went by the name Sawdust or A.E. Sawdust. A.E. was the prefix that the CIA gave to all cases that pertained to the KGB. Uh, Sawdust's entire purpose was to vindicate Angleton's theory that the KGB was running a gigantic deception operation that essentially rendered post-war history itself suspect. You see, to Angleton's way of thinking, everything from Khrushchev's denunciation of Stalin to the civil rights movement, the counterculture, the Cuban Missile Crisis, and American popular culture itself, all of it had been manipulated in some ways by shady KGB actors, both within and without the US government, to fool the West into believing that some kind of rapprochement with the communist world was possible, while the communist world went about preparing some kind of final assault on the West. Angleton even accused uh, Canadian Prime Ministers Lester Pearson and Pierre Trudeau of being KGB models. That's Justin Trudeau's dad. Nothing was true. Everything was in doubt, according to James Jesus Angleton. You see, he was infatuated with the aesthetics of espionage, with the murk and the fog of the Cold War. And he referred to this ambiguous liminal space between truth and lies and reality and fantasy, this world of deep state actors and intelligence operations as the wilderness of mirrors. A writer called David Martin published a book about Angleton in 1980 that used that phrase in the title, and Angleton was appalled. Uh, he described this as intellectual theft. He said, quote, I probably invented the term, and for reasons that seem to escape Mr. Martin's understanding. The wilderness is the myriad of stratagems, deceptions, artifice, and all other devices of disinformation which the Soviets used to confuse and split the West. Our policymakers are confronted with a landscape where fact and illusion merge. Now, although he claimed he'd invented the term, Angleton had actually lifted it from a T.S. Eliot poem called Geronchen. Uh, it appears in this passage, quote, These were the thousand small deliberations, protract the profit of their chilled delirium, excite the membrane when the sense has cooled, with pungent sauces multiply variety in a wilderness of mirrors. What will the spider do? Suspend its operations, will the weevil delay? De Belhesh, Freshka, Mrs. Kamel, world beyond the circuit of the shuddering bear. 
Anonymous sources who took part in Sawdust have since confirmed that there was sustained pressure on them not to question Angleton's grand unifying theory of Soviet espionage too much, and that for the sake of their careers and prestige inside the agency, it was best to go along with his notion that every single Soviet defector since 1961 had been a fake, a KGB disinformation op, and above and beyond anything else, they had to buy that the CIA itself had been penetrated at the highest levels, and therefore fellow officers were no longer above suspicion. The sheer scale of what Angleton was proposing intimidated younger CIA analysts into playing along, because, you know, this was James Jesus Angleton, this was the poet's book, The Spider, so surely he knew what he was talking about. Now, Angleton never wrote down his theory about the monster plot. But when asked to explain it, he would reel it off flawlessly from memory. Uh, he would give an oral version of what he called a chrono. Uh, he wove an intricate tapestry that began with the Russian Revolution of 1917 and moved up through the decades to the present. And it detailed historical events, both famous and obscure, that were, in his argument, obviously manipulated by Soviet intelligence if you knew how to read the events properly. Now, he couldn't point to any single document or informant or piece of evidence to substantiate any of this. So what he did instead was rely on his chrono. A chrono is shorthand for chronology, and in intelligence analysis, a chronology is simply a document that contains every single piece of information about a given topic, entered in the order in which it is received. And the key thing to remember is that with a chrono, the agent includes all information, even if it's false or contradicts something else in the file. And the idea is that you can discern the truth by studying the lies as closely as the facts. And using this chrono, so the thinking goes. The agent then applies what the counterintelligence team called mirror reading to the document. And this is very much like the close reading that was favoured by proponents of new criticism back in Angleton's Yale days. And as with a poem or a story, the point of close reading, a chronophile, is to build up a broader impression of the capital T truth from the unmasked facts, speculation, and errata. And this then supposedly reveals a deeper layer of information, which is gleaned from the way in which the entries in the chrono are connected, whether they're real or fake. If that sounds overly complex and mystifying, then welcome to James Angleton's counterintelligence division. We spoke before about what can happen in this shadow world of spooks and espionage when actors become totally detached from all forms of external scrutiny and accountability. You know, about the derangement that can happen when they become convinced of their unimpeachability and start to operate solely by the inside-out logic of the world that they inhabit. By the mid-1960s, the informational ambiguity inherent to intelligence work had become its own kind of intoxicant to Angleton. He travelled through his wilderness of mirrors, nursing a bottle of scotch and chain-smoking into the early hours. He relished locking himself in his office, the blinds closed, a small desk lamp illuminating the, the piles of intel reports and memos that he pawed over, applying his mirror-reading technique 
attaching double and triple meanings to everything he came across, from the content of the report itself to the author's choice of phrase and punctuation, convinced that even the way information was visually arranged on a piece of paper might provide the final clue to the identity of the moles who were key players in this monster plot. The CIA counterintelligence division was consumed by a kind of hysterical paranoia as Angleton's hunt for the KGB moles proceeded. One Italian intelligence officer who'd been sent to Washington to assist the CIA in the 1960s. Well, he reported his impressions of the counterintelligence division and Angleton to his bosses back home. Angelo Vicari, who was the chief of the Italian police, he recorded all this in a secret memo that he sent to the Italian government. One particularly hilarious passage uh, goes like this, quote, the man who ruined the CIA's defensive sector is James Angleton. He is clinically insane, and his madness has only gotten worse in recent years. His madness is sustained by an intelligence that has elements of the monstrous, and it rests on a hallucinatory logical construction. His pride then leads to a refusal to recognize his own errors. This was tail chasing on a massive scale. And the result of all this tail chasing was that counterintelligence ground to a virtual halt. And before too long, the illness was spreading to other parts of the agency. And eventually various factions developed inside the CIA as a result of Angleton's mole hunt. There were some who, they bought that a few Soviet defectors were fake, but they didn't believe that all of them could be part of this vast conspiracy. And nor that a conspiracy this vast could even exist without them being aware of it. Another group were fully in favor of Angleton. And they looked on him almost like a, a deep state prophet. And then there was a third group who thought that Angleton's mole hunt, the way that it was draining CIA morale and diverting energy into trying to prove the reality of an obviously false theory. Well, they began to suspect that Angleton himself was the Soviet double agent if anybody was. They pointed to his friendship with Philby and how the so-called puppet master had apparently completely failed to suspect he was welcoming a KGB spy into the family home. Uh, they saw how he tied the CIA in knots and buried promising officers under mountains of paperwork. And they suspected that this was a deliberate effort to cripple the CIA's ability to function as an effective intelligence outfit. A counterintelligence officer called Claire Petty was the chief proponent of this theory. And although it made as much sense as anything Angleton was dreaming up at that time, Petty could never find that smoking gun, you know, the, the compelling single piece of evidence that would substantiate his suspicions. And it does, to be fair, it does run contrary to almost everything that's known about Angleton's politics. He was very occasionally liberal in his choice of friend and the kind of literature that he sought out, but he was so firmly committed to radical anti-communism that he helped Nazis escape the destruction of the Reich, uh, to say nothing of everything he was involved in with the CIA throughout the 50s and 60s, from the program of warrantless surveillance on US citizens to Operation Chaos, you know, the effort to infiltrate and subvert the new left domestically. And it should also be said here that the suggestion 
that Angleton had genuinely gone insane was popular at the time in the CIA and elsewhere. But it's probably overcooking the pudding a little bit. Um, he certainly retained enough faculties to run the domestic counterintelligence programs that we've already mentioned. And he maintained his position as a well-respected spy master at the agency well into the mid-1970s. When he was finally called before the church committee, he was allowed to give his testimony in secret. And by all accounts, he impressed and charmed many of the senators with his knowledge of uh, CIA and other intelligence activity and his grasp of obscure details. He was also a creature of bureaucracy and politicking. See, on paper, his role at the CIA should not have afforded him the autonomy and influence that it did. But in practice, he was one of the most powerful intelligence operatives in the Western world. And although he did eventually quit under pressure from the CIA in 1974 because of the revelations of the church committee, this was mostly an exercise in PR. And he was quietly rehired as a consultant when they felt it was safe to bring him back. So I think it's time now that we talk about Mary Pinchot Myers killing again, because it's in this period, uh, the mid-1960s, that everything that seems to define Angleton's career is on full display. We have his affinity for poetry, his role in a truly baffling sequence of events that only he seems to have known the full scale and implications of, or at least he affected to and his maddening ability to spin complex webs that might be designed to cover up something secret and monstrous, or might just be another layer of illusion that, if we could pierce it, would reveal nothing of significance at all. Mary and Cord Mayer moved to Georgetown in the mid-1950s, and they both had a background in vaguely left-liberal politics. Mary had been a member of the American Labor Party, and Cord Mayer had been a U.S. Marine lieutenant who found himself horrified by the atomic bombs dropped on Japan. Uh, he flirted with pacifism and became president of the United World Federalists. He advocated a, uh, a global democratic government to bring about world peace. Albert Einstein was one of his biggest supporters. Uh, Cord's personal politics always seemed a little bit confused. Uh, after writing op-eds in support of nuclear disarmament and world government in places like the New York Times, he grew disenchanted with utopianism and he eventually accepted an offer from Alan Dulles to join the CIA in 1950. He had a very bruising encounter with Joe McCarthy and J. Edgar Hoover in 1953 when he was accused of being a communist subversive due to his published essays and short fiction. Alan Dulles came to his defense and refused to allow the FBI to investigate Mayer, which, you know, earned Mayer's loyalty. In Georgetown, they moved in that circle of liberal intellectuals and artists that had such an ambiguous relationship with the CIA. Uh, we have to remember that for a while in the 1950s, the CIA was actually seen by plenty of influential progressives as 
the sane, rational arm of the federal government. And you can peg this in part to the agency's nucleus of Ivy League educated types. Uh, many of them had backgrounds in the humanities, which obviously impressed liberal progressives. And you can also point to Alan Dulles's professional rivalry with the FBI and J. Edgar Hoover. This was a rivalry which liberals seem to have misinterpreted as some kind of ideological schism, with Hoover painted as a proponent of an American police state and red-baiting paranoia, which he was, and Dulles painted as the champion of liberal democracy and sane government, which he wasn't. The mayors counted spooks, artists, and academics as friends. There was Bill Walton, who was a Normandy veteran and war correspondent. Uh, he developed an interest in abstract expressionism and worked on Kennedy's election campaign. You had Frank Wisner, a CIA founder and deputy director of plans. James Truett, he was a journalist for the CIA-linked Time Life, and his wife, Anne, was a sculptor. Ben Bradley, former naval intelligence officer and Newsweek writer, he was married to Mary's sister, Antoinette. And James Angleton and his wife were also frequent guests at the Mayor House, owing to their shared interests in poetry and the arts. Because of Cord Mayer's work on Operation Mockingbird, you know, the, the CIA's effort to influence US news outlets, journalists were particularly frequent guests at this Georgetown house. Uh, John and Jackie Kennedy moved into the neighborhood in 1954. And as we've said, Mary and Jackie became very friendly with each other. Although Jack and Cord apparently shared a mutual dislike, which went back to their college years. The social circle extended way beyond this, but in the interest of time, I'll move on. So throughout the 1950s, Cord Mayer was growing bored and disillusioned with the CIA. He didn't like the nature of the work that he was doing, uh, helping journalists bury damaging stories about the US government and military, and his marriage was faltering. Uh, he was deployed to Europe around this point to work at the CIA's Radio Free Europe, and Mary and Cord grew further apart. Their oldest son was actually hit by a car and killed outside the family home. And this is what finally led to them separating. James Angleton is said to have had the house immediately bugged the day after Cord moved out to ascertain whether Mary was likely to air any CIA business in public during the divorce proceedings. And I would assume to, to keep Cord informed of who she was seeing and who she was talking with, with him gone. So at the beginning of the 60s, Mary appears to have started making forays into the early counterculture. Uh, she visited Timothy Leary a number of times, so he claims, and dropped acid to explore her inner space. Leary also claims that she asked him to teach her how to guide acid therapy sessions. Uh, apparently she said she had a friend who was a very powerful man who might benefit from a, a controlled trip. So in the wake of JFK's assassination, Mary kept a diary where she recorded details of her time with JFK, the aftermath of Dealey Plaza and developments with the Warren Commission. Uh, the deeper she went into the background of Lee Harvey Oswald, Jack Ruby, Alan Dulles and other key figures who played a role in the build-up to the hit, the more convinced she became that Kennedy was actually the victim of a high-level conspiracy and Oswald was some kind of patsy. The Warren Commission itself struck her as a diversion. You know, um, 
manipulating evidence and shaping the narrative to ensure that Oswald was established as a rogue agent acting completely independently of external influence. That Alan Dulles was on the commission and the CIA's conduit to it was the counterintelligence section headed by James Angleton heightened Mary's suspicions that something was seriously amiss. As she moved deeper into the swamp of intrigue surrounding Dallas, she forgot about pursuing her interest in art and devoted hours to charting the the networks of power and influence that were connected to the assassination. And more than that, against the advice of her, her closest friends in Georgetown, she started to air her suspicions to people in her social circle, many of whom had direct contact with CIA officers. Now, whether she was testing the waters, you know, looking to see if she got a reaction from someone in the intelligence community, I honestly can't say. Maybe she calculated that she'd be protected to some extent by her connection to Cord Mayer. The Warren Commission report was released in September of 1964. Mary thought it was a jerk, an obvious snow job. She said as much. Three weeks later, she was shot to death. Ben Bradley claimed that a CIA agent named Wister Janney called him with news of Mary's shooting a little bit after lunch on the same day. Janney then contacted Cord Mayer once he'd finished talking to Bradley. Now remember that at that point, Nobody except the cops knew that there'd been a murder on the canal footpath and nobody knew that the identity of the victim was Mary Pinchot Mayer, which certainly raises some interesting questions. Janney and his wife had also been part of the Mayer's social circle and their son Peter remembers going on camping and fishing trips with the Mayers in the 50s. Uh, Peter Janney actually wrote a book about this case called Mary's Mosaic, which I, I highly recommend you read. Uh, he has always maintained that the CIA and his own dad had something to do with the murder. And it's his belief that Bradley was spreading CIA disinformation to cover for who was really responsible. He points to how Bradley changed his story in later years and claimed that he only found out Mary was dead when he was called to the morgue to identify her body. Peter Janney grew up in an environment that was saturated in CIA intrigue and he knew better than anyone how they'd sometimes use journalists like Bradley to leak false admissions of wrongdoing when under scrutiny. Uh, so they get them to tell conflicting stories full of conspicuous discrepancies that were meant to be noticed. And this would then help amateur sleuths build up chronos of disinformation, you know, and they would then create fake conspiracies that diverted from looking at the actual criminal activity the CIA was engaged in. As an interesting side note, Peter's dad, Wister, he attended the, the numerous CIA meetings to discuss what they could do to sabotage Jim Garrison's investigation into the JFK assassination. And in the meantime, Angleton asked one of his agents, a guy called Raymond Rocker, to submit an analysis of how likely Garrison was to obtain a conviction of Clay Shaw if he went to trial. Rocker supposedly judged that Garrison was onto a winner, which, you know, turned out to be completely wrong. On the night of the murder, Anne Truitt, who was in Japan, 
contacted Antoinette Bradley, Ben Bradley's wife, and told her about the existence of her sister Mary's diary. Uh, Anne convinced Antoinette that if the cops found it, Mary's reputation would be destroyed. So the Bradleys swung by Mary's house the next day. Uh, although I should say, I've seen some stories that peg the search for the diary as happening five days after her murder, not the next day. Uh, but yeah, anyway, they swung by Mary's house and found that the front door was locked. They found a spare key uh, hidden under a flower pot. And when they stepped inside the house, who should they find in the living room but James Angleton, who nonchalantly admitted he'd picked the lock. He claimed that Anne Truett had also called him the night before and asked him to find Mary's diary. And I think we're both on the same page when I say that Angleton was most likely tapping the Bradley's phone as well. And that's how he found out about this journal. So there are about a dozen conflicting stories of what happened next. Uh, Bradley says that after they searched the house and found nothing, they decided to call it a day and they went their separate ways. But midway down the street, his wife suggested they go back and search Mary's art studio, which was in a garage just across from the main house. And when they got there, they again found Angleton tinkering with the padlock on the front door. And they say they found a diary of sorts in a steel box in the studio. They say they did. And along with that, they found some love letters from JFK. Again, all on their say-so. The Bradleys took it home and they read through it. And according to them, there was nothing in it but a few sketches and some scribbled ideas. And despite their claim that it was totally without value and it was nothing to get excited about, they still gave it to Angleton, who then claimed he burned it. The entire story from here on out is one of claims and counterclaims, and you'd be surprised how hard it is to even pin down how soon after her death the hunt for the diary actually took place, uh, who was present, and what was actually found. You have Angleton's children years later. They claim that he and his wife were two of Mary's most trusted friends and that it makes complete sense that she would have wanted him to have her personal papers if something had happened to her. Angleton himself said alternately that there had been no diary, that there had been one, but it didn't contain anything of interest. And finally, that he took the diary to protect JFK's reputation, which is a statement so comically absurd on its face that only he could have told journalists that with a straight face. Uh, he was rumored to have only burned the most sensitive passages in the book, you know, the ones pertaining to CIA activity in Cuba and its ties to the mob, which JFK is supposed to have speculated about to Mary. And the story goes that Angleton held on to the more salacious passages and kept DC journalists entertained over evening drinks by reading them Mary's accounts of dropping acid and smoking grass with Kennedy. Then you have the second and third hand accounts that dropped years later. So you've got Timothy Leary, who only made his claims about Mary Pinchot Mayer 20 years after the fact. Between 1964 and 1983, he said barely a word about her. Uh, the relationship between Mayer and Kennedy was only made public in the mid-1970s by James Truett. Both Angleton and Bradley attempted to close the story down, but they were too late. Uh, Truett 
were gone to suffer a nervous breakdown where he moved to Mexico to grow up peyote after his marriage fell apart and he shot himself in the head in 1981. Ben Bradley told the story about his phone conversation with Janny only after Janny was safely dead and buried and couldn't contradict him. And you then have the figure of Lieutenant Mitchell, the man who claims he saw Raymond Crump stalking Mary the day before the killing. It turns out that Mitchell was connected to the CIA in a dozen different ways, and the US military did everything it could to rebuff freedom of information at requests until they were forced to release some extremely heavily redacted documents about him. Peter Janney said this about Angleton's account of his role in the aftermath of Mayer's killing. Quote, Is it now to be believed not only that Mary Mayer entrusted the safekeeping of her diary to Jim Angleton, but that she had also specifically instructed him to burn certain pages of her diary if anything happened to her? Nothing could be further from the truth. It is not known, nor likely ever will be, how Angleton twisted the arm of Anne Truitt to declare that on the night of Mary's murder, she should call the Bradleys and inform them that such a diary existed and that Mary had told her to make sure Angleton took charge of it, should anything happen to her. But the answer to the question of who called the Truitts in Tokyo to inform them of Mary's demise is obvious. It was Angleton himself. So in essence, we have a fairly simple claim, just in case all this is getting <laughs> too weird and confusing, right? Basically, the claim is that Mayer was in possession of highly sensitive information given to her by President Kennedy that might have implications for investigators looking into his assassination and all the CIA's Cuban activities. And the claim is that she was therefore killed before she could release this information and contradict the Warren report. But this has been buried under a mountain of disinformation and myth-making. Uh, what you have to remember when you read what the different parties connected to her have to say is that most of them were CIA adjacent and so have every reason in the world to lie. None more so than James Angleton. And in fact, the entire affair has his fingerprints all over it, not her murder per se, but rather the subsequent flood of lies and conflicting tidbits of information in the aftermath. It is exactly the kind of maze that he accused the KGB of constructing, but that he was so adept at building himself. It's the vexing unknowability of the events surrounding her death that fascinates researchers. The same goes for, you know, the JFK hit. The diary itself may well be one giant MacGuffin. Her death could well have been a completely chance event, an unlucky and tragic encounter with a, a random psychopath. But there does appear to have been a concerted effort to manipulate events after her death, you know, to, to spread rumor and misinformation. And the maddening question of why is what I can't figure out. So for me, I tend to find that I go with Cord Mayer's take on the subject, which he offered in 2001 as an ailing old man in a nursing home. See, in 1980, Mayer had written in his book, Facing Reality, quote, 
I was satisfied by the conclusions of the police investigation that Mary had been the victim of a sexually motivated assault by a single individual and that she had been killed in her struggle to escape. But in 2001, a writer called C. David Heyman visited Mayer to interview him and ask him if he still believed what he'd written back in 1980. At this point, he was only a few weeks away from death, Mayer was, and Apparently, he no longer felt obliged to protect any of his old spook friends, uh, most of whom were dead anyway by that point. So he admitted that he hadn't believed Ray Crump was the shooter for some time. And when Heyman asked Mayer who he thought might have killed his ex-wife, Mayer said, quote, The same sons of bitches that killed John F. Kennedy. When Angleton left the CIA for good, the new head of counterintelligence brought in a team of trusted staff to clear out the spider's offices. And it's a testament to how bewilderingly complex and remote his mole hunt had become, that most of the documentation they found stuffed into filing cabinets and spilling out of desk drawers was completely new to them and almost impossible to make sense of. They'd heard the stories of his briefing sessions for new division chiefs, you know, the, the hours-long conspiratorial lectures about the poetry of history, the connections between different chronos, the monster plot, on and on. They found a bow and arrow in one of his safes and had to have them tested for poison. Uh, in another, they found thick dossiers on both the Kennedy assassinations, complete with gory autopsy photos. In April of 1975, Angleton became a CIA contractor. Both he and CIA Director William Colby had actually lied to the Church Commission about this because officially Angleton was supposed to be done with Langley. But that same year, he received the Distinguished Intelligence Medal for his services to the agency. But his time as a real voice of authority, you know, as the, the revered ghostly knight of American intelligence that pretty much drawn to a close. And declassified CIA documents have since shown that despite his exposure as the architect of the chaos program, despite his reputation inside the agency as a guy who'd once had it, but had given himself over to paranoia and megalomania. Well, despite that, he continued to consult on and off for both the FBI and the CIA and assorted think tanks connected to Langley 
in some roundabout way well into the 1980s. Angleton had spent a lifetime right at the heart of some of the biggest political events of the 20th century. And for every legitimate conspiracy that he'd been a party to, you know, a gladio, a chaos, a bay of pigs, or what have you, he'd helped create half a dozen more that sent countless people tumbling into his wilderness of mirrors, chasing figments of his imagination, fantasias that he conjured up for a lark over lunchtime martinis to hide much darker realities. In turn, he'd likely fallen for exactly the same type of misdirection from the KGB, uh, believing that the Soviets were so omnipotent and powerful they'd turn JFK into a secret red. In his final years, Angleton grew more somber about his time as a leading figure in the American deep state. And in 1987, dying of lung cancer, Angleton said this, quote, Fundamentally, the founding fathers of US intelligence were liars. The better you lied and the more you betrayed, the more likely you would be promoted. Outside of their duplicity, the only thing they had in common was a desire for absolute power. I did things that, in looking back, I regret, but I was part of it and I loved being in it. Dulles, Helms, Wisner, Donovan, if you were in a room with them, you were in a room full of people that you had to believe would deservedly end up in hell. I guess I will see them there soon. Mary Pinchel Mayer was just one in a string of mysterious deaths connected to Dealey Plaza. And I think Angleton quite enjoyed the intriguing tangle that he'd helped create around her murder. I think about Libra, you know, the Delilah novel, and how Delilah once said that the Warren Commission report is the book that James Joyce would have written if he'd lived to be 100. And there is something to that when we look at James Angleton's methods, the idea of worlds within worlds exploding out from seemingly the smallest and most mundane story, the smallest moments. Angleton knew how to construct something close to that, but with real people and real events. Everything he had a hand in feels loaded with importance and hidden meanings that researchers are meant to dig into and analyze extensively. Whether there's something there or not doesn't really matter after a certain point. People like him have you the moment you raise your eyebrows when you find an intriguing thread and start pulling on it because ultimately only they know the real truth behind a given event. Only James Angleton and the people in his circle know if Mary Pinchot Mayer or JFK or Judith Exner were really killed by high-level conspiracies. The rest of us can only study the chronos and try to connect the information. The poem that Angleton took his famous term from, Geronshin, well, it contains more than a few lines that could be about the ghost himself. Uh, the entire piece is about an old man in an old house waiting for the rain, uh, reflecting on the complexities of history and how difficult it is to understand and navigate. His closing lines especially seem to contain some very eerie foreshadowing about the post-CIA decline of the man who helped overthrow governments, manipulated American society, and impassively watched world leaders die on his agency's orders from behind that ever-present cloud of cigarette smoke. 
So I'd like to close out the episode with those final lines, if that's okay. So here goes. Gull against the wind in the windy straits of Belle Isle, or running on the horn, white feathers in the snow, the gulf claims, and an old man driven by the trades to a sleepy corner, tenants of the house, thoughts of a dry brain in a dry season. Whatever else I do, midnight.